0: or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind. And I hope you'll stick around. What if I took a poll this morning and asked each of you this question? What is the greatest single technological advancement In the history of the world? What would your answer be? Well, here are some leading contenders on this slide the telephone, possibly improving upon the telegraph, of course. The light bulb, thanks to alternating current and electricity, which in and of itself might be the greatest technological advancement. The television, it certainly has been one of the most life-altering technologies in the history of the world. Maybe it's the internet. What about global positioning satellites, GPS? You would be amazed how often you use those now. What about penicillin, modern antibiotics, the printing press, refrigeration, and with it air conditioning? Thanks be to God for that one the gasoline engine with the automobile to follow, the semiconductor and computers, or will it be artificial intelligence? I actually think that last one will be the end of us, not the greatest technological advancement. I don't really know, and there, there, there's really not a correct answer, though usually when you put a list like this together, somewhere near the top will be the printing press and electricity, because of how many technologies those two technologies have empowered and spawned and enabled. And I wouldn't argue with either of those. But there is an older, ongoing technology that many anthropologists point to that may have enabled all of the advancements that I just cataloged. And it's not the wheel or fire or primitive tools. But it's close. It is farming. The development of agriculture. About 12,000 years ago, our species transitioned from being hunter-gatherers to being planters and being farmers. In the Middle East, first it was wheat and chickpeas, domesticated and cultivated from the wild. In the Far East, as it remains today, it was rice and soy. Africa was a bounty. Sorghum, sweet potatoes, okra, black-eyed peas, coffee. Most of our southern diet was imported through African slaves who brought their food with them. Here in the Americas, it was the three sisters, squash, green beans, corn, along with tomatoes and peanuts. In Australia, in case Gary Hedges is watching today, it was yams and bananas. All around the world, at roughly the same time period, humans began to create row crops and field plots, allowing groups of families to settle together instead of constantly being on the move in search of food. And as the centuries passed, the more skilled we became at growing food and the more intense the occupation became so much so that no true empire has ever arisen without ample supplies of food. The nations of the world rise and fall based on the health of their harvest. Now, leaping forward through history into the last hundred years in our own country, we can witness the continuing advancement for ourselves, though it might look like regression. There's a graph if you would show it This is the number of acres now being farmed in the United States, and you see that it is on a radical decline. And that would look negative, but it requires a little context. A hundred years ago, next slide please, there were 6.5 million farms, 1.25 billion acres, and a third of the U.S. population lived on a farm. And now today, there are only 2 million farms in this country, encompassing about 850 million acres. And of those farms, less than 10% of those make any kind of profit. And the most eye-popping statistic of all over the last 100 years, only 2% of Americans live on a working farm. A hundred years ago, a full third of our population was in close contact with the food that we ate. Two percent of our population produces our food. And again, this looks like decline until you see the production. One American farmer a hundred years ago could feed a dozen people. Today, that same farmer, using the same amount of land, can feed almost 200 people. Tractors, combines, fertilizer, green technology, scientifically engineered methods. No, not all of these methods are good for the food supply or for those of us who are eating that food supply. Monsanto, I'm looking straight at you. But the volume that a farmer can produce today would absolutely astound his or her grandparents or great-grandparents whose best efforts wouldn't come close to even an average harvest today. Now, the downside besides genetically altered and corporate-controlled farming is that most of us, 98% of us, are completely removed from the supply chain. We don't know how farming works. We don't realize how hard it is. We buy our food with hardly a thought of the work it took to get that life-sustaining meal into our hands and into our stomachs. I love this story. Years ago, I was at a county commission meeting in North Georgia where I lived, and this new McMansion neighborhood... Had been built on what used to be a farm. And it's just folks from the city escaping the city to go up into the hills a little bit. And the HOA of this new McMansion development was having trouble with a few of the local farmers. Their chicken houses smelled bad, their cows were really loud. They were not doing a whole lot to help with property values. And the HOA had this particular woman who was the spokesperson for this new home development. She was there and a couple of the farmers was that were there. And one of the farmers finally got his chance to speak and to defend his way of life. And he sort of asked rhetor- rhetorically, he said, If you get rid of me and all the farmers, how are you going to eat? You can't tear down every chicken house just because it smells bad. And I kid you not, the lady from the HOA got up and she said, Well, sir, I will just buy my chicken at the grocery store. (laughs) Farming is hard. You have to work with the soil, whatever soil you have. You have to beat back the pests and the bugs and the blight and the disease and the locusts and the crows. You have to pray for the right weather. Enough sun, but no drought. Enough rain, but no floods. Enough shade, but not too much wind. And then if your neighbors are trying to run you off your land at the same time, and if you have to fight the bank to keep the family farm in the family, no matter how... How much the world quite literally is relying upon that farmer, it must seem impossible to keep the hand on the plow, or in today's terms, your butt in the tractor seat. There's a Canadian poet named Brian Brett. He's incredibly interesting. He's more than a poet, he's been a journalist, an author, a teacher, and and a farmer. He grew up on a farm and he lives today on a small farm on Salt Spring Island. British Columbia, across the strait from Vancouver with Seattle to the south. And in his memoir, he said this about farming. Farming is a profession of hope. Consider the three words he uses. Farming, the act of cultivating something. Incubating life. Growing something that will sustain life For others. It is a profession. That is it is more than a job. It's a vocation. It's a calling. It's a specialty that one gives himself or herself to. And then that third word. Hope. Hope isn't wishful thinking. It is a persisting resilience that believes in the future. Farming is a profession of hope. That might be, in a simple way, one of the more profound one liners that I have ever heard. Now, I'm going to do my best today and with the next two Sundays following to recruit you. I want you to become a farmer. There is a life and a life giving life that you can take on as your craft, as your profession. A hopeful vocation to grow a thriving, bountiful future. And it's not easy. I'll warn you. There might be some long days. There will be sweat involved. It's not for those with soft hands or those short of patience. You'll have to get some grit under your nails and in your boots, but it will be worth it. Hope and the future is always worth it. Matthew 13 is a really interesting chapter, and Anna, as usual, gave it a wonderful introduction. There are so many parables of Jesus in this one chapter, so many, that we can't even agree on the number. Oh, there are six, because Jesus combines one story. No, there are eight, because he has that one-liner near the end of the chapter. Well, I'm not going to quibble about it. There are at least six, and there might be up to eight more parables in this one chapter than any other single chapter in the Gospels. And what you heard read today was the parable of the sower. It goes on to include the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven or the yeast, the parable of the hidden treasure, parable of the pearl of great price, parable of the fishing net, all of these, six, seven, eight, Jesus' main teaching here and preaching subject, he is taking the parable and talking about the kingdom of God. And three of these parables, the first three, are all agricultural. They're all about farming. They're about persistence. They're about casting forth and sowing good seed while praying and looking and hoping for the harvest. These three are all about the farmer doing what the farmer can do and then leaving the results to God. To the parable at hand. Let's do three things quickly. Talk about the parables in general. Then talk about how Jesus uses a parable. And then quickly to the parable of the sower. First, what is a parable? I should let Anna just come back and read what she said. It is a story... Intended to communicate a larger truth or, as she said, to challenge a listener's assumptions. In Jesus' case, most of the time, he uses the latter, not the former. What Jesus wants to do with a parable is not to give his listeners a nice little bedtime story. What Jesus is doing with a parable is to upset their thinking To change the way they are thinking. To surprise them in some way that they might be opened up to changing their mind or changing their perspective. He intentionally wanted people to be uneasy sometimes when he told a story because it might just kick the old noggin into gear. Scientists today now using MRIs had begun monitoring brain function of those who are listening to stories and telling stories, and they asked this question, what kind of effect do powerful narratives really have on our brains? How can a story translate into actual behavioral changes? In one case that I love, scientists at Princeton University hooked up... uh, machinery to a woman as she was telling a story. And when she got to the part of the story that was particularly moving, the part of her brain that controlled empathy and morality lit up like a Christmas tree. Simultaneously, those who were listening to the story were also being monitored. And when her brain lit up telling the story, their brains lit up in the exact same place so that researchers are discovering that there is a emotion, an emotional, uh, almost biological connection when someone is telling a story that is especially moving and the people are receptive to it. It brings the storyteller and the story receivers together in a way that few other things can. I would venture to say that the only other thing besides story that has this kind of power is music. Facts really don't change people. If facts changed people, our world would be a different place. Sermons don't change people. And I've been giving sermons for three decades. And I'm telling you, they, ra- <laughs> they rarely work. <laughs> Only stories seem to, to break us open and to disarm us And I'm asked all the time, why do you you just tell stories? And my answer to that is there is no such thing as just a story. Stories are what we are made of. And stories crack us open and as Leonard Cohen would say, when we crack open, that's how the light gets in. That's how Jesus uses a parable. To so... Knock someone off their game to crack them open so that the light can get in. And what light was Jesus trying to shine into his listeners' hearts? His preachings and his stories always went something like this. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God more than a hundred times in the Gospels. If you were to ask, really get it down, analyze it. What was Jesus really talking about when he came to earth? Consistently, it is this thing, the kingdom of God. The crux of everything that he had to say. It ties together his life, his words, his sufferings, and his resurrection. Well, okay. What is the kingdom of God? A simple answer. It is the transforming Love of God brought to earth. Period. That's it. Jesus intended to create a community of love infused people. Who would make it their vocation. Their calling to live out that love. So that redemption in any way that we can define it. Would be experienced today. Now, largely what we have today are these things called churches, and they don't always match what Jesus intended to do. But Jesus's intent is to bring the rule and love of God to the human heart. You don't even have to be a Christian to appreciate this perspective of Jesus, because after all, Jesus wasn't a Christian. But that's a talk for another time. I better leave that one right there. Jesus came to create a people who would pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, where? On earth, as it is in heaven. We would pray that and then go live that, go be that. He was inviting a group of people to get in on the life-changing movement of God's grace. Jesus did not come to relocate people from earth to heaven but to revolutionize earth by putting heaven inside of people. That's the kingdom of God. Dr. David Winham says this, Jesus had two things that many modern preachers conspicuously lack. He had a clear and powerful message about God's love and he had the ability to communicate that message in an interesting, intelligent, and forceful way Jesus taught profound theology, yet he did so not in long and complex discourses, but through down-to-earth, real-life stories. That's the light Jesus was shining. And some got it, like Hank Williams. No more in darkness, no more in night, praise the Lord, I saw the light. Some got it, and some didn't. And that is what the parable of the sower is about. Jesus explains it. The seed is the word of God. And this message, it is sown without discrimination. It is widespread. Some seed falls on well-trod, packed down earth. And that seed is incapable of penetrating. So it gets quickly carried away. Some seed fell on thin soil. The roots Aren't nourished. It fades away with the weather. More seed falls among the thorns. And the thorns choke it out. The growing plant succumbs to the cares of the world. But finally other seed fell into good soil. And produced a good crop. Now I want you to think on this. And maybe maybe every person that's had my job these last three decades. Should have been told this when they started. Think on this. As effective as Jesus was, as powerful as Jesus was, as radical as Jesus was, he acknowledged that not everyone is going to be receptive to the message. In fact, a minority will be receptive to the message of God's love. And that says some things to you and me, I think. One, you're not likely to be more effective than Jesus. Surprise. Two, don't be discouraged when sowing the seeds of God's love is met with what you might call a poor harvest because it's not always about the harvest. And three, you can't make anyone except love. The great Bonnie Raitt. Because I can't make you love me if you don't. You can't make your heart feel something that it won't. Or George Strait, if you prefer, you can lead a heart to love, but you can't make it fall. If the soil cannot nurture the seed, it cannot nurture the seed. You want a proof of this? Go plant rhubarb in your garden in Florida. Good luck with that the soil, the environment, the conditions simply will not sustain that plant. People's hearts are like that. You can't force love. You can't make change happen. You can't grow the seed into a fruitful plant. Jesus knew this. He taught us this. Live a loving life, spreading God's good word as you can, but the results are not yours to manage. I learned this lesson from my mother. She was so concerned for the souls of her grandchildren, my children. And it was driven by, and it came from such a good place, her love for them. But there was also a ton of fear that went along with it. She wanted everyone in the family to have said the sinner's prayer just as she had said the sinner's prayer. She wanted everyone in the in the family to be properly baptized as she understood that. And she wanted everyone to do it on her timetable. And it extended past my children. It also extended to one of her brothers and a few nephews. And she would corner them and just put the tent revival altar call to them with genuine weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I don't think it did anything but push them away further. The most genuine of efforts, and hers was genuine, in the wrong season... And in the wrong soil, doesn't yield very much. Now I know there are people that you love, and you want nothing more for them but to choose Christ, to live a life of love, to join this movement of God. And you can sow that seed, you can carry that message, better yet, you can live that message. You can inhabit the story of what it means to be a person of love and grace in service to God and to others, but you cannot make it happen. You cannot manipulate. You cannot coerce. You cannot force. You cannot push. It is the equivalent of trying to wrestle green fruit from off of a tree. You won't get what you're after and you will only damage the tree in the process. Invite. Live a life of hope. Share when appropriate. And when asked, resist the urge to help people. Because help is often just another word for control. Learn what it means to simply love. Because that's what we're trying to share. And that is the only weapon at our disposal. You know, it really is a miracle... The way that anything grows. It's a miracle. You put that seed in the dirt. A seed that's been cultivated. And maintained over thousands of years. You put that seed in the dirt. Just dirt. That stuff your mama told you to stay out of. You put it down in that dirt. The sun shines. The rain falls. And if you give it a little time. Through no magic incantation of your own. A crop begins to grow. Sure, you'll have to pull a few weeds, run away a few crows, but when the love of God is planted, give it time. It will grow and flourish in the places that it is received, and this is our hope, this is our faith, because farming is a profession of hope.